Hello? Hey, John. What's up? Hi, Dan. How's everything going way up there in uh, Seattle? Oh, just fine. It's a yeah. nice sunny day today. Has it gotten started to get cold there? It started I finally feel like I noticed the a little bit cooler here. It's very noticeable in Texas when it's even just a few degrees cooler. And I notice that when I get wake up in the morning to take my kids to school, or if I step outside in the evening, it's finally not horrible. It's okay. You can you've got two or three hours in the beginning of the day and a couple at the end of the day to kind of bookend the uh, 90 degree weather because it's going to be 92 today. Oh yeah. You know, it's the opposite here. Kind of not opposite, but this is, this is a wonderful time. And in the Northwest, the rain starts again. It, it, uh, uh, the trees all changing. It's, it's beautiful. It's nice to have rain. We like it. Uh, but it gets cold it it turns really fast. It gets cold, and the the problem is that it it starts getting dark. Uh, oh right, my, that's right. Like it gets dark, starts getting dark at like four. Well, not quite. We because daylight savings time hasn't come and hit us like a like a ton of bricks. But the other, you know, my daughter started swim team, and they swim outside, uh, and she started in. Well, when school started in, in the beginning of September, and for the first couple of weeks, uh, her mother went and bought a a couple of pickleball paddles and some balls, and the tennis court that's next to the swimming team, swim where the swim team swims, has uh, has invested in some pickleball nets, which allows them to turn one tennis court into two pickleball courts. <laughs> And I was dubious about I, one time, a long time ago, uh, the Hodgmans rented a house in Maine for the summer. And the house had a barn. And in the barn, and it was a house that had been, it was the longtime vacation house of Michael Shabon and his wife. And they decided to move to Is a that a person house. like I should know, know who that is? Oh, you should know who Michael Shabon is. Yes. Dan, Dan Michael Shabon, uh, he wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Cavalier in Clay. Oh, of course. And has written many, many other wonderful books besides. Michael Shabon is an American novelist, screenwriter, columnist, and short story writer. Okay. His wife, Ayala, is also a, uh, a novelist and a writer and wonderful lady. And they vacation. Oh, he's in one. Maine. He's like he does sci-fi and stuff like that too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. He's got a he's got a book about what if the Jews emigrated to Alaska instead of Israel and 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 <laughs> started cool. a new. Oh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union. There you go. An alternate alternate history mystery novel published in two thousand seven won Hugo Sidewise Nebula and Ignotus Awards. Mm-hmm. All of Alaska. That's everything. It's the, it's the new Israel. It's a and and yet it's a mystery. It's a mystery novel. So the Very the backdrop cool. is just the that's just the backdrop. He's a wonderful man, and and he and um, anyway, they had this house that they routinely used, and then they pivoted to a different house or bought a house. It's all happening up there in that Blue Hill region of Maine, which is kind of the writerly spot. Um, that's where E. B. White had his house and. You read about 
that part of Maine in all those quaint little New Yorker articles from the 50s. And right. All the writers like it there. And uh, and so we were up there, and uh, and in the barn, on the second story of the barn of this uh, this house, there was a pickleball court inside the barn. And, you know, what it is, it's just, a, it's like wiffle ball except on a tennis court with ping pong paddles. And <laughs> Hodgman was like, do you want to go play pickleball? And, you know, Hodgman and I have, uh, we have a lot of different grown-up male relationships between us, but one of the ones that we have never had is a sports one. You know, like he and I don't have any sports competition with one another. We don't go do a sport together. Right. We don't, like, go swim. You know, the sport is not a is not a thing that we had. Mm-hmm. But we went into this to this barn and we got into a pickleball game and he was quite good. And it was, and I grew up playing tennis and we were, it was like this really exciting, uh, like other dimension in our relationship. All of a sudden it was conceivable if we lived in the same town that we would have one of those, uh, trading places relationships where you meet at the club and you go play, uh, whatever racquetball. Right. And so it was, so I, I developed an affection for pickleball, which I probably would not have because it's a, because it's a a sport that's gaining popularity and it feels like tennis, except not as much of a sport. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels like a, like, like tennis, except cheating. And I think I would. What's the cheating about? I mean, I don't, I don't know what pickleball really is, other than what you just said about it. So you got paddles instead of. Is it rackets. a tennis ball that you're using? It's a wiffle ball. Oh, a wiffle ball! It's only cheating because it's half as big and it requires half as much running and half as much hard work. It's okay. like easy tennis. It's not simple. I mean, it's still hard, but it just. I would, I think I would have been a snob about it, except that I had this wonderful experience a handful of years ago playing with Hodgman. And now I'm like, oh, right, pickleball. And so, anyway, the point of the story is that when she started her swim team, her mom and I went to the neighboring tennis slash now pickleball court. And played pickleball while she was swimming. And it felt like, oh, this is, look at this. This is a new family activity. Because outdoor swimming in Seattle is not a year-round thing. Oh, no, definitely not. And we were very curious and still are, like, how long are they able to swim? And the pool is is kept heated and they're children, so they don't feel temperature or pain. Right. <laughs> like, right. Are we going to be standing out here in the in the sleet in in uh, December watching our kids run laps in this pool? It's kind of crazy, but but oh well, we're over here playing pickleball. Well, just between the start of school and now, which is still early early October, the sun has gone completely away. So that so that. Two weeks into this activity, we had to stop playing pickleball at 7.30 because it was too dark. 
And now at 7 p.m., it is just, it's too dark to, you couldn't see the ball. You know, it's too dark to play pickleball at 7 p.m. And a month ago, you could play until 8 p.m. All right. And a month from now, you're absolutely right, Dan. It will be dark at 4.30. Mm. And that's just a, it's a really brutal uh, transition. And it makes us all hate daylight savings time in a way that people in texas cannot fathom i believe that because it's happening anyway you know we're losing we're losing the day but we get to a point where it's like oh wow the sun goes down at six now that's crazy and then then the world goes oh no in fact it goes down (laughs) at five boom (laughs) and you're like five five like five is still Five, it shouldn't be dark at five. And, you know, in Alaska, of course, it gets dark, especially after daylight saving time. It's like, hey, it's 2 p.m., time to roll up the, the sidewalks. Oh, yeah. So that's the hard, that's the hard part. I mean, it is, it is cold er, yeah. now, but I, you know, I like, I like blankets. I like cuddling up, but it's, it's, uh, I, I just live, I'm looking at the, Sun and I'm saying, please don't go, please don't go. And uh, daylight savings time is—it's just such a. Wait, cold when does that pud. change? Spring forward, fall back. Yeah, when is it happening happen? soon? It you—you you, you never see it coming. It just comes, and then you're. And you know what is it? What is it? It's trying to keep daylight in the morning for the freaking farmers. That's what I always I've, heard. I've always heard that. And then I heard uh, some other reason that came into being that was like, oh, it's because they've done studies and that there's mm-hmm. less crime, but there's so many places studies. that aren't doing it now. I got your studies right here. Yeah, I agree with you. I yelled about it on the internet every year and there were always a bunch of people that were like, I love daylight savings time. Who, but- who has ever said that? Well, they're morning people. They want to get up and have the day. They want the day to be there when they wake up, and they don't care about the day being there later because, you know, they get off work at five, I guess, and right. dinner's at six, and you should be home in bed with your, with your Bible. 9.30. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think but, you're right. You're on to something. You're on to something because I think that anyone who stays up in the evening, who stays up at past, I know a lot of people that, you know, nine thirty. They're like, "Well, I'm gonna go brush my teeth now and uh, sleep by 10. That's not for me. I don't know a single person like I that. I know but a it's lot not of people a, like that. It's not. It's not in my job. You know, that's not how people are. Two a.m. Sunday, November seventh, is the ending of daylight saving time. So, yeah. exactly a month from today, we're gonna have to go through that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think we. Um, I think as a people, the last couple dozen years, not even that, the last the last 20 years, we've spent a lot of time uh, learning about neurodiversity mm. and about all the multiplicity of, of ways that there are to be. And we've done, I think, a lot of work culturally trying to understand that all these different ways of being are not ranked on a scale of good or bad yeah they are they are all ways of being and that that's been very hard for uh, a lot of people it's been hard i think probably for all of us over time because in the past we very definitely ranked ways of being 
and said, these are the good ways of being. These are the not good ways. And these are the off limits ways. And these are the ways of Satan. (laughs) And so it wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just a transition of saying like, well, these are not ways of being that are of Satan. Right. But in fact, trying to learn to say like, well, we don't rank ways of being. But in my impression, we still do, everybody does still rank ways of being. They just, they've made the the mistake of saying, we don't rank ways of being the way we used to, but we still do. I just ha- get to decide what ways we rank ways of being. And that is partly why we're living in a time of utter chaos, because we have not successfully, very few people have successfully done the you know, transformed themselves and said, I don't rank ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that a lot of people rank ways is that they just privilege morning people over night people. Right. We still will, you know, I think it will be a thousand years before we don't privilege extroverts over introverts just because Mm-hmm. The extrovert gets there first and fills out the form before the introvert gets there. And the, the form <laughs> says, should we prefer extroverts? And they go, absolutely. And they were there, you know, they just, they got there first. And that's the same, the same is true of morning people and evening people. There are so many places that close at five. They close at five. There might, might as well not be a sun in the sky because, because everything closes. People go home because they got to work at seven and, when they get to work at seven, they're serving people that are awake at seven and they feel like that's the world. And the people that get up at one and are out of the house by four only can run one errand before the world shuts down. Right. Those, that is why Amazon is the biggest company in the world because mm-hmm. there are so many of us that are like, ah, oh, finally, I don't have to pull up in front of a store just to watch them turn the closed sign around. And I can just get it online, and you know, like uh, if your if your bookstore that closes at five goes out of business, do you know who reads books? It's not people that get up at seven no, in the morning no. or five in the morning. That's not who buys your weird books. It's people that wait. It's people that wake up at one in the afternoon who buy books. Are you kidding me? So, I as somebody who uh, is. On the on the scale of of like uh, the way I am being ranked in the world, the way I am is still ranked pretty high relative to the way other ways of being can be ranked. But definitely, like introverted night person, it's the it's just the subtle. It would seem, I think, to a to a extroverted day person, like they're. It would just be an invisible set of uh, inconveniences and prejudices. They would never even notice. Right. But, you know, for an introverted night person, you're constrained by... Yeah. My friend Ben bought me a gift certificate to a boot company down in Oregon that makes logger boots. Oh, that's your that's your jam. Yeah. And, and this is a this is an old and storied logger boot-making company called Wesco. And their boots are very expensive. When I first discovered Wesco many moons ago, their boots were very expensive 
and by that I mean two hundred dollars. Nowadays, all boots are two hundred dollars. You can't go to a tennis shoes are two hundred dollars. No. Well, maybe not. But a lot of boots can't get a pair of Red Wings for less than two hundred dollars. Definitely not. At the time, these were custom boots, and I should have bought a pair twenty years ago. And I was like, "Wow, two hundred dollars!" And I, you know, and when I when I finally had two hundred dollars to to spend on custom boots, I kind of was like, "Oh, you know, okay, well, I'll do it." And I drove down to Oregon, which is a long way, on a Saturday, and I got there, and there was a sign on the door that said "Closed Saturdays." Now, I didn't think that was possible because they are in a very small Oregon town called, it's not Papoose, what is it? Scapoose. <laughs> Scapoose, Oregon, on the, on the Columbia River. So really, to get to Scapoose, unless you're coming from Portland... You have to, it's not on the way to anywhere. It's not, I mean, I guess it's between Portland and Astoria if you're taking the long way. But like there are loggers all over Oregon and Washington. And in order to get to Scapoose, they would have to uh, take a day off, you know? Scapoose, or, or I'm sorry, Wesco is open from eight to five, Monday through Friday. And so, I went by there, and this is testament to my dumbness, but I would be in Portland, I'd be headed back to Seattle, and I would go, oh, I'm going to go out to Scapoose on the way home, way, way out of the way, go to Wesco, and I'm finally going to invest in a 200, now $220 pair of logger boots. Right, custom. I would drive out of the way. I would go over there. I'd pull up to their gate because they have a gate, and I, and I would be reminded, oh, it's Sunday. I, you know, I'm going home on Sunday, and they're closed, but they're closed on Saturday too. When I would go down there on a Friday night, I'd be driving down to Portland. Oh, I'll swing through Longview and go over to Scapoose. Oh, I get there at 5, 10 p.m., and they're closed. Hmm. Well, it has become a major issue because my friend Ben bought me a gift certificate oh, at one point as it. a present. You gotta use he it. bought me a gift certificate for a pair of boots. Now they're much more expensive now than four than uh, two hundred dollars or four hundred dollars or more. Mm. Increasingly more. It's like these freaking Filson bag, bags that are almost five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. And who can afford them? Who can afford a five hundred dollar more six hundred dollar pair of boots? You know. And the thing is, if you're a logger. If you're a if you're somebody who wears their boots as a tool, mm-hmm. I guess you pay six hundred dollars for a pair of boots because it because it really makes a difference in your job, and it's just one of your tools. It's it's you know people that buy snap on tools, whatever. But for somebody like me that is not going to fell any Douglas furs in the next five years. Having a pair of boots like this is overkill. It's a it's a fashion statement. It's a it's an affectation. Hard to justify, but an incredible thing. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a thing, it's an incredible thing. Well, Ben very generously gave me a gift certificate for a pair of custom boots at Wesco. Well, let me tell you, Dan, how hard it is to get to Scapoose, Oregon, between eight and five p.m. 
on a weekday. I'm guessing me. you've got to go there in person because you've got to get, they got to measure your foot. They got to draw, they got to have you stand on a little card and they got to draw around it. And you got to well, pick so they, the material and you can't do any of that from home, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they send you a kit that says stand on this piece of paper and have someone trace your foot. But I, you know, if I'm going to have a custom pair of boots made by an Oregon tim- Timberjack company. Mm, you want to go in. Yeah. I, I want the I want the big bearded people to come stand around and fuss and muss and tell me that maybe I should get the black tuxedo leather or maybe I should have the the rough out, you know, and and I want the whole, I want the tactile experience of it, but, and and I can't, what I can't do is say to it, to the world, guess how much more money you would make if you were open on Saturday? Because I can't know. Mm. And presumably they've, they have a business. They, it's, they've considered it. They've decided not to do it for some reason or other. They've probably asked the people that came into the store at eight o'clock in the morning. Hey, if we were open on Saturday, at <laughs> would, 7 you come, would you come in on Saturday at 7 PM? <laughs> and they're like, no, no, I love coming in at 8 AM. And they're like, see, nobody would do it. But I, you know, there's so many things that I just feel like if you were open an hour later, if you opened an hour later, and stayed open if you were open from nine to six or ten to seven, you'd make more money. There'd be more people in here. You would find, but but it may be, I may be wrong. You know, the here in Seattle we have express lanes on the freeway. Do you have express lanes? Yeah. That change yeah. direction? Uh Mm, they don't they don't change direction no but we have usually there's like depending on the the interstate there'll be a lane that you can get in that it costs money to be in it yeah but you can be in it and it there's fewer cars in it and the cars that are in it are more expensive and they're driving much faster it's it's the, the rich person's lane here in texas the rich person lane mm-hmm. yeah the the wonderful thing about the the way they built freeways around austin is that um, they just kept building them. They have, um, the the freeways in Austin are wide a beam because you've got your freeway and then you've got your side freeway and then you've got your side road, your access road to the freeway. And then you've got your buffer road to the access road to the side freeway of the main freeway. Yeah. It's astonishing how, you know, they're 15 lanes wide. Yeah. And then under the freeway, there's the under freeway. Yes, yes, yes. Here in Seattle, we have the problem where there's an ocean. There's a, uh, there are seven hills like in Rome. And then there are lakes. And it, when they built the interstate, they did the thing that they did in so many, uh, American cities, which is they found the part of the city that they valued the least, typically the black neighborhood, although in Seattle it was the Asian neighborhood, and they just put the freeway there. Um, But in a lot of American cities, there was nothing constraining the freeway. They could have put it a lot of different places. They just decided to put it there. Here, they put it, they basically put it where they could. There wasn't any other place to put it. 
And so they built an express lane, which was the, the style of the time, and it changes direction. In the morning, the express lane goes south, and in the evening, the express lane goes north. And that's because at the time, the, um, the suburban sprawl was happening in the north of the city. And the south of the city was where the darker-complexioned people lived. Mm-hmm. And also Tacoma. But they couldn't, the freeway planners could not conceive of a time that you would want to go south of town on an express lane. And so, honestly, it starts in downtown and only goes one direction out of town, to the north. Well, there have been a lot of studies because a lot of people have said, hey, this whole business of everybody comes in in the morning and everybody goes out at night is maybe true, except for, for instance, the night of the seafair parade. Mm where you've got the express lanes pointed north, but everybody in the town is trying to come into town to go to the Seafair Parade or to go to the Seahawks game or, you know, like there are special circumstances where it seems in order to alleviate the enormous traffic jam of everybody crowding in at the same time that you should change the express lane direction, you know, one night only to let everybody come to town for this thing. And the Department of Transportation, according to them, have done lots and lots and lots of studies and have determined that even though everyone's trying to go to the to the baseball game, still there is more traffic headed north in the evening uh, and so it still doesn't make sense to change the direction of the lanes. And I've, I've, that's a small little conversation with the Department of Transportation, but I mull over it all the time because I see these events and I look down at the express lane and I go, really, is it still true? Look at all the cars over there trying to get in and look at how free and easy it's flowing over here. Right. The Department of Transportation, you know, ameliorates it over, you know, their actuaries. And they're like, over the space of the eight hours, there are still more cars going that way. So when I look at people who close their shops at five, I think maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's the express lane issue where to me, it seems like all of us, Late in the day, people are stacking up outside the door of this German deli trying to get schnitzels. Mm-hmm. But the inside the schnitzel store, they're like, yeah, we have done it. We've done the math. And staying open later is just, we don't sell as many schnitzels. And, you know, and I don't know why I all of a sudden my accent changed there because. Is that how I they talk know. in the schnitzel? Place? Yeah, they're all from Bavaria. but Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, um, right around the corner from my house here, there's a, a restaurant and, you know, they're, they're kind of like a, I 
think they pride themselves on having a really, really extensive beer selection on tap. And it's all like local breweries are supported and all of that stuff. But they also have food and they've always done food in there. So I think of them maybe more as a restaurant, but I think a lot of people think of them as like a, it's not a brewery, but you know what I mean, whatever they call that. But they do food and everything else there. And they used to be open like regular hours. They would do lunch, they would do dinner, and then they'd stay open later for the evening crowd that would come in. And You know, around the time of the pandemic hit, you know, I don't think they ever completely closed down, but they definitely switched to an abridged schedule where they were opening up, in many cases, opening up at five. Mm-hmm. to do dinners only, and then they would close, I don't know, 9 or 10 o'clock. And they recently kind of, like, then they, they were closed, like, Mondays, maybe they were even closed Mondays and Tuesdays. You know, it was this abridged schedule. And then they finally opened back up Mondays and Tuesdays. And so I went in there, and I was getting a burger. And I was talking to the guy in there. I'm like, you know, are you ever going to ba- open back up for lunch? Because we used to go there at lunch all the time. It'd be wonderful to be able to go and get a, one of their burgers at lunch. And they do the steak fries. It's hard to find steak fries. Everyone wants shoestring fries now. Everyone wants thin, little thin, crispy fries. I want a French fry where you can tell. I know you don't like potatoes, but I want a French fry that's the most potato you can get. I want it to. I want you to be able to look at it and see that it came from a potato. Maybe it's still got a little skin of the potato on it. I want it to be cut fat. I want it to absorb all the grease when it's being fried. That's the kind of that's the kind of French fry that I, I really want, like a steak fry. Hmm. And they do really great steak fries there. So who doesn't want that at lunch? I want that at lunch. So Everybody them, wants a steak fry? Is that your contention? No, I want a steak fry. I see. And uh, what do you think? What do you think? I think everybody think wants the, the crispy, a little thin oh, shoestring fries. Ones. Yeah. And so I asked a guy, I said, you know, are you going to open back up for lunch? He says, well, you know, it's something we're talking about, but... You know, and this goes to your point exactly. He's like, now we're we're probably just going to stay open later, rather than open mm-hmm. up for lunch. They're well, going to be open nice. late. Well, it's nice, except I don't want a hamburger most of the time. I want a hamburger at around just throwing out a time twelve thirty p.m. Not mm-hmm. not twelve thirty a.m. That's not really when I want to go and get a hamburger, but that's when they're going to be serving them. I see. So it's sort of the opposite problem, but. You know, it's interesting because at some point they had to say to themselves, like your schnitzel place, when when are we when do we feel that there will be a, more of a demand for this food that we make and this drinks that we make? And obviously they've figured out it doesn't make as much sense for them to open early as it does for them to stay open late. Yeah. But I often wonder if this just the squeaky wheel gets the grease type situation. Where you get people like, well, you're closing at 11. Why are you closing at 11? We just got here. As opposed to the people that they don't see and that they don't know about who are like, hell yeah, I would have eaten lunch there if you'd been open. But those people never get to see. So if you're you're turning off the lights at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you're going to see a bunch of people like dragging their feet and getting out of there. But you don't see the people who would potentially be hitting you up for lunch if you were open, if you were just open. Right. And then the problem is everybody like me who would eat lunch there uh, has figured out that they're closed for lunch. So now if they start o- reopening for lunch, we're never going to know it. 
Right. Because we just assume that they don't do lunches anymore. So what are they going to do? Say we do lunches now. And if I'm never going there for dinner time ever, I'll just never know it. it for all intents and purposes, they don't exist anymore. Well, they got to hang up a banner and then one day you'll drive by and go, oh, yeah. Oh, wait, look, they're open for lunch. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you'll have a routine by then. Mm-hmm. The, yesterday, I was sitting in a traffic light at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I watched a food truck that was called like Saffron Rice <laughs> uh, drive by. It was, yeah, 2.30 in the afternoon. And a lot of the food trucks up here are either uh, food trucks that represent brick and mortar restaurants who are successful at selling uh, quarter pound hamburgers that have uh, homemade pickles on them or whatever. Oh, right. And they spin them off into a food truck. They can get them to your part of town. Right. Or they are kind of professional food trucks who are uh, parked in the same location all the time and just sort of like, it's a restaurant except it's a truck. Right. And maybe maybe if it's like really fancy, there's like a bench you could sit in mm-hmm. your table with a table you could sit and eat at. Yeah, a little, a little, uh, a little tent even, or maybe a oh, big tent, like a lean to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's the ragtag fugitive fleet of <laughs> uh, people who are like, I like to cook, and I'm going to get a truck, and I'm going to try this out. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to start a food truck. It's like starting a restaurant without the capital investment necessary. Although there's a lot more investment in making a food truck than you think at first. Because you got to have this, you got to have that. Oh, do you know you what gotta, it costs to like stand up a food truck? Probably it isn't cheap, just because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of code around it, mm-hmm. and you could probably buy an old food truck, truck, but you got to get all those different systems working, and mm. and any more, I doubt very much you can just pull up into a parking lot. I'm sure you have to lease the space, and you have to have running water, and a lot lot going on. You don't have to provide bathrooms and you don't have to, uh, I mean, I bet opening a real restaurant in a, in a building is twice as expensive, but, but here goes Saffron Rice guy and I get a look at him and he's a young guy and he's got a beard and he seems like this might be his, you know, this is his dream. He's probably... Married, his wife is probably in the back of the truck. It feels like a family-run enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saffron Rice. And they're not doing the thing where they're just like, hot dogs and hamburgers. They're, they're trying to be a little gourmet, and they probably park. They do the lunch business. They park by where the office workers are. Right. The office workers flood the streets at lunch. They're always looking for something interesting. And, you know, they are hoping that eventually enough of them are like, hey, let's go try saffron rice, that they become part of the routine. But as he drove by, I'm like, 2.30, it's all done. You wrap it up at 2.30. Yeah. I wonder where you could be, where you could park saffron rice, where you would have a steady clientele all afternoon and evening. And maybe it is, maybe you figure out a way that you park someplace from 11 to 3 or 11 to 2 and you just have a mad rush 
And that's enough. You that's, get- they, they do enough business in that time that what it would cost them to operate, to run and operate longer than that. It's just not worth it that they're not making enough money to do it. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure they've tried to stay open till four, and from uh, from one o'clock to four o'clock, there it's there's just not enough customers. Yeah, but I watched him go by, and it felt very much like a shoestring situation where they'd put their money into this truck, and they'd done the thing that. Every friend I've ever had who's worked in a cafe or a restaurant into adulthood as a server or a bartender, they get to that moment in their 30s where they're like, I, you know, it was one thing to be a, a server in a restaurant in my 20s. I, I have a job. It's a good restaurant. It's a, it's a fancy restaurant. I get paid well. But... But as I've always said, working as a bartender or as a a waitron in an expensive restaurant is very much like working as an exotic dancer because the money is good and the work, you know, you get days off during the week. You know, your shift is not a typical, like, office shift. And you can get caught in a situation where there's not a better job for you that where you make as much money and work those hours. And so you stay there. But the thing is to be an exotic dancer in your forties is a very different job than being an exotic dancer in your twenties. Yeah. And the same is true about being a bartender in your forties and fifties. In your 20s, you're like, I'm a bartender. And in your 50s, you're like, I'm a bartender. <laughs> and so along the way, every everybody I've ever known in that world, which is a lot of people, invariably they come to a place where they're like, I'm going to open my own place. I'm going to open my own cafe. I'm going to open my own bar, open my own restaurant. And the thing they don't consider is that the reason they want to open their own place is they're sick of being a waiter. But in opening their own place, what they're really doing is giving themselves an 80-hour-a-week job as a waiter. Mm. Because they can never punch out. Punch out. And they're still, they're still waiting tables. There's no... I mean, maybe they're... Maybe not only... They, they work 40 hours a week as a waiter, and now they're working 40 hours a week as a kitchen manager. Right. So watching these kids go by in this truck, I was like, when they start the truck, it feels like freedom. And then they have to do the truck and keep, I imagine keeping a food truck going is a lot more work than it seems and exhausting work. And every night you're counting the till out and you're like, we did it. But now you've got a food truck and you've got to keep it going. I, and as they drove by and he had kind of a, he was hunched over the steering wheel like driving and he, and he just seemed like still excited to drive the food truck home. And they had to get someplace and clean and, mm-hmm. and um, but my heart kind of stung a little bit 
as they drove by because I was like, oh, please, oh, please, Saffron Rice, please survive. Like, please let this, what I'm, what I'm now guessing is a little family, please let them thrive in their Saffron Rice life. And, and, um, maybe they have a couple of kids and they, they're able to rent a two bedroom house in Seattle and they have their food truck. And it just, you know, it was just like a, I got very sentimental about them. And my first thought was stay open later. Maybe I'm crazy. Right. Move from outside the Amazon campus to somewhere else where people are in action at 5 p.m. Go somewhere. But the thing is, who you get maybe they're just making such a killing, though, that they don't need to do that. You know, they're they're there and they're saying, you know what, this is this is a gold rush here. What we make in the two hours from 11 to one or from, you know, 12 to two or whatever. Like that's more than we made when we were open eight to 10 hours at this other location. And that's yeah, enough, right. you know, like there and, and, and that's the lunch rush and they're done. Like they are a lunch. Like we like to, I like to think of restaurants, whether they're food trucks or whatever, or I used to think of it this way is that they're, they're like a restaurant. And like you expect the same way that I expect target to be open whenever I need something from target. And if they're not, mm-hmm. then they're dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, I expect the restaurant to open up at whatever time I want to eat there, regardless mm-hmm. of what day or time that is. So there's one place not far from here that is, um, it's a, it, oh, it's, it's a great, it's a great place. It's called El Dorado Cafe. It's on West Anderson Lane. It's not far from here. And, you know, yes, you, you could call it a, um, you call it a, a Mexican or Tex-Mex kind of a restaurant. Uh, but it's one out of every three restaurants in, in Austin, but I would rather call it, I would call it it. Well, it's definitely comfort food, first of all, but it's Mexican inspired comfort food. So they've got, it's a great place to go with friends. They've got fun drinks and stuff. They've got enchiladas. They've got all kinds of different queso. It is a great place. Yeah. Chicken fried steak with the Mexican seasonings. I have not had that there. I'd have to check and see if they have that. Uh, but I don't eat um, that kind of fried food because I don't eat gluten. Uh, and all almost all fried food is fried with like a batter and the batter has the gluten in it. So I can't have now, that. What about these giant fries that, you're, that you they're were not, extolling they're, just a There's ago. cross-contamination, I'm sure, but it's, they're not breaded themselves. So I'm not eating it directly. And I'm not sensitive enough. I'm not uh, celiac or whatever. I see. So I don't worry about that. You know, out of sight, out of mind. You're just la, la, la. La, la, la. But this place is great. Their enchiladas are amazing. They do an amazing, like a shiny rib that's really good. I mean, even their wedge salad is good. Like the whole place is really good. But they are they close early a lot of days. And some days it's just not even open. Some yeah. days they're just not even open at all. And I'm like, how do you how do you decide that? You know, the the, the typical thing. So like, okay, I'm looking at their hours right now. Tuesday to Saturday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Closed Sundays and Mondays. Closed yeah, yeah. Sundays, though? Closed Sundays? Who doesn't yeah. want to pick up dinner on Sunday night? You want to cook on Sunday night? Are you crazy? Are they Jesus people? No. Huh. It's just like, but that's the day that they chose it. Almost all the Asian restaurants closed on Monday. That's like a thing. All the barbecue Furniture stores. Uh, yes. 
all the barbecue trucks that are out here. We have, I don't know because I've never been to Seattle, but we have a wonderful uh, food truck situation here in Austin. There's lots of food trucks and they're both, they're both the kind that you described before, the kinds that are permanently sort of stationed. They're stationary yeah. in one place and they stay there and, uh, and they have the little benches or the tarps or the little tents outside. And then there's the kind that travel around, but the kind that travel around here are few and far between there. They do exist. And yes, just like you said, a lot of them are offshoots of a restaurant that's doing well. It's like, we're going to take a subset of our menu and bring it to the poor people up in the Arboretum office park. Right. Um, but most of them here are, are sort of permanently in one location and they kind of group together. So you might go to a place and they'll be like, there, there's the taco one, there's the barbecue one, there's the one that does the artisan lemonade, you know, and they'll all be like, to, and then there's the coffee one. And they'll all be together and you can sort of park awkwardly in a side road and walk over to them. And I guess you're getting all three of those things at once. That's the Portland model. You know, Portland, <clears throat> they colonize a whole, one of those city block uh, parking lots. Mm. And they set up basically a restaurant row, yeah. hang Christmas lights, put out picnic tables, and all of a sudden you've got uh, 15 restaurants to choose from. And there are multiple of these in Portland. And yeah. they've become institutions so much that uh, you know you couldn't clear them out of there. Seattle has not really done that. We still, uh, we still associate food trucks with because the ones in Portland are open at night. It's just like a it's a party environment. And here one of the things that one of the major things that differentiates Portland from Seattle is that Portland feels like a collection of neighborhoods and the whole town just kind of feels like a neighborhood. Like it, the neighborhoods blend together and you just feel like you're in a neighborhood that happens to have <clears throat> a small scale city in the center, but it's not, the city isn't what Portland is about. It's a cool little city, but it's this, you know, it's this, uh, chain of pearls, a string of pearls, which is all these little neighborhoods. Well, Seattle has neighborhoods, but they are not <clears throat> really connected to one another. You have a neighborhood and then, you go for a drive and then you arrive at another neighborhood and the neighborhoods are bigger than Portland neighborhoods and more, um, there's more going on, but it doesn't have that bleeding into one another thing. And so there's no, that Portland has a feeling that all these little neighborhoods, like at night, some of them, feel like little party destinations. You go up there and it's got <clears throat> it's got a kind of stroll around character. And a, a part of that of course is also that Portland's a flat city. In mm -hmm. Seattle neighborhoods it just doesn't have that kind of like fiesta thing. And and Austin has this too. There's a kind of the, the, because the town is lar largely flat, 
you get out into these little areas and it's like, oh, this is nice. You stroll around. It's warm out. And up here, <clears throat> there's not that. And it's it's city planning. We made decisions all along the way, starting in 1880. We made decisions about how the town was going to be laid out and what its focus was going to be. And the people that were laying it out had metropolis on the mind. They had wide boulevards and big parks and neighborhoods with purpose, and, you know, things, roads. And it, di it just didn't morph into the way people want to live now. It may never have been the way people wanted to live. No, that's not true. I mean, the Seattle that my dad grew up in that had trolley cars, I think trolleys link things together in a way that buses don't. And, but, you know, in 1940, I don't think people were out eating tacos and fiesting, no. right? I mean, everybody was home having a ham for dinner. So there's a, <clears throat> there's a quality to Seattle, like the neighborhood that I live in, there is, there are a lot of people in the afternoon who are out power walking. Mm-hmm in pairs or in small groups. They're not walking anywhere. They're just walking. They do, they, they do a loop because there's nowhere to walk to. If you walked up to the town, there's a, you know, or the center here, there's a grocery store. There's a, there's one of the, there's an outdoor mini mall, but there's no place that's got Christmas lights and, and, and a saffron rice. And it's just bad. <clears throat> it's just bad planning that, that, and I can go back in time to the day that they were planned. And I can see in the, in the ghostly shapes, the idea that the planners had when they, when they looked at open country and they said, what are we going to build here? How's it going to, How's it going to go? And they're like, well, we're going to have one diagonal boulevard that crosses <laughs> because that diagonal boulevard is going to get you from hither to thither. But then we're going to grid. But then it's going to get, we're going to do a kooky little thing where there's no grid in the middle of the grid. And then over here, we're going to, this is going to be where everybody drives to go to the grocery store. And it's not, it's like they did in New York where they said the grid is supreme and whatever was here is, it doesn't matter. There are going to be a few, we're going to have to incorporate some off-axis grids down in the south part of town that were there before and we can't fight them. All that stuff below Canal where it's like, I don't know, somebody... Somebody put a grid down here. Seattle's got that in, in spades. The downtown area was settled by, what is it, three different men. And all three of them had a different plan for how the streets would be oriented. One of them oriented the streets according to the coastline. Mm -hmm. One of them oriented the streets according to the compass. 
and one of them oriented the streets according to his own whim, or perhaps because the coastline was different in his part of town. And so the three the three towns collide <clears throat> in these crazy and then oh and then there was the diagonal boulevard guy. So the 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 town is like it just feels like a like somebody threw some tinker toys down. Roads kind of just going cattywampus every direction. <laughs> and then those extend out to places that are way way far away from where from where those three ding-dongs were not coordinating with each other because they could all see each other. You know, the three guys could, they were all starting in a position where they, they could, uh, they could put a fire in the fireplace and the guy on either side could see it. Mm -hmm. But then you've got situations where five miles away, there's somebody on a, there's somebody on a grid who is colliding with some other street where it's like, where did that street come from? Oh, it's, something from that other grid that's headed out this way. But they don't, I don't know, Dan. I'm down on Seattle. I have been for a while, and I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I was going to say, what are you going to do? This, you're, you're the Seattle guy. This is where I'm from. This is, there's no, as my dad used to say, there's no geographical cure. You can't move somewhere else to escape your alcoholism, but you also can't move somewhere else just to escape that you have to be somewhere. I've been looking at houses in Portugal because Portugal apparently is one of the cheapest places to live. Really? Cheaper even than moving to somewhere in Central America or in Asia. Or even, you can like, just, like, I mean, I always hear that like Mexico is affordable. It is. It is affordable. But easy to get back to the U.S. You don't even have to get on a plane, right? Yeah, it's easy to get back. Apparently, Portugal is as affordable as Mexico, and it's in the EU, and you can live there more cheaply than here. I'm I'm trying to think of how I'm going to ever go into retirement because I don't have any way to do it. And whatever money I'm ever able to save, I'm fi I, I turned 53 a couple of weeks ago. 53. 53. Happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Uh, if that is halfway through my life, I will live to be 106. And I have some doubts about whether I'll live to be 106. I'm not going to get to 106 if I'm sleeping four hours a night. Is that all you're doing now? Well, I slept eight hours last night and it's because of three things. I was so exhausted right. from sleeping only four and a half hours of sleep um, the prior three nights. I was so tired that I was able to go to sleep at two o'clock in the morning instead of four o'clock in the morning. And then I slept in three chunks. I slept from two o'clock in the morning until eight. I woke up, I looked at the clock, and I said, I don't have to get up yet. I rolled back over and I slept till 10. Mm. And then I had set an alarm and I rolled back over 
reset the alarm for 10.50. And as you know, our show starts at 11. Right. And so then I woke up at 10.50. So three chunks. One of them a big six hours. And then I managed to get that second two hours and then a, and then one little sort of rump 40 minutes. I had to splash some water on my face and then... Then you're awake. You could function. You could go. Yeah. Open my computer and you heard me, right? And then I said hello. But I can't... I'm not going to live to be 106 sleeping four and a half hours a night for three nights in a row and then one sort of crashy, groggy eight hours. Mm -hmm. Who knows what's going to happen tonight? But I got to figure out what to do. If I if I joined the Navy, I'd be retired by now. I wouldn't have to worry about it. I would. I'd have a. I'd have a retirement for the rest of my life. I could live to be 106, and the U.S. Navy would pay me my retirement right up until the end. I think. I don't think the Navy. When you get to be 90 years old, the Navy's like, look, man, we've been paying you your retirement for so long. You were only in the Navy for 20 years. We've been paying you your retirement for 60 additional years or whatever. Yeah, I think they pay it forever. You know, and so that's, you get to be 53 and you're like, oh, I know all these people in the Navy now and they're, they're retiring and they're, it's, you know, think about in the old days when you worked at General Motors until you were 53 and then retired. Right. Retired with 30 years. On the job, and you got your pension, and then you moved down to the villages in Portland, uh, in uh, Florida, and you played golf for the rest of your life. Right. Well, I'm not going to be able to do any of that. You should have joined the Navy. I should have joined the Navy. It's what you know. Throughout my whole life, every once in a while, I've I've woken up in a cold sweat and gone, "Oh God, should I have joined the Navy?" I mean, I don't think I would have been very good in the Navy, but who knows? You know, you throw you bloom where you're planted, as my dad said. Mm-hmm. Bloom where you're planted. There's no geographical cure. My dad had a lot of little sayings. Bloom where you're planted. That was his way of saying quit complaining. If I was like, ah, my my feet are cold, he'd he'd say, Bloom where you're planted. I'd go, Am I really planted here? We're only here for two hours. I'm just sitting in a waiting room while you go do something. <laughs> Am I supposed to bloom here? I'm not planted here. He's like, Bloom where you're planted. He said, God loves you, dear, and you can sit on your hands. That was another one of his sayings. I never said nobody loves me and my hands are cold. But he would say, God loves you, dear, and you can sit on your hands. Mm -hmm. Whenever I said, I'm hungry, or Susan ate all the M&Ms or whatever. God loves you, dear, and you can sit on your hands. But imagining myself living in Portugal... How is that better than living in Seattle? Cheaper. Cheaper. Your money goes further. But you'd There's have to the move the whole family. You have to move the, your daughter and then everyone else. Like that would, who do you know over there? Do you speak Portuguese or? No. <clears throat> no, but. Seems like a, you know, something would help. English is the lingua franca of the world. It's not like you would be able to sit on the stoop and converse with every little old lady that went by, but they probably wouldn't resent you. They'd say, oh, the American that lives on the corner. 
Who knows what he's about? He seems nice. But then when you went, when you needed food, when you needed stuff, there is, somebody's going to speak English everywhere you go. These days, you're not going to go into a restaurant and say, I'll have the schnitzel, and they go, okay? You know, they're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 the American wants the schnitzel. Why they serve schnitzel at that place, I don't know. Presumably, it's a German restaurant, and they're going to speak English because they don't speak Portuguese either. Well, yeah, but I mean, they're a German restaurant in an English-speaking country. If they were in Portugal, they'd probably speak Portuguese and German, and then well, you'd, this is, you'd be out of luck. This is the old way, right? Yeah, if you're in Poland and you're running a restaurant, you probably speak Russian and you speak German because you're – I'm talking about in the 1980s. 1990s yeah because those are languages you learned in school and that's who the majority of your tourists are but if you're in poland now well your tourists are going to be coming from riga and stockholm and uh they're going to be coming from paris france and so you're not going to learn all those languages you're going to learn english because they all are going to speak english so the Swedish guy is going to say, uh, "Do you have an do you have a menu in English?" Because he knows they don't have a menu in Swedish. So English, at least in my experience, in most places of the world, is what people now try to learn in order to communicate with each other. And then this isn't this isn't uh, a universal truth. There are a lot of people in Eastern Europe that that learn German before English because. They're overrun with Germans. But if you're running a restaurant in Costa Rica, Costa Rica is a bad example because they speak English, a lot of them. But if you're running a restaurant in Nicaragua and a Swede walks in, mm. what's he going to do? Say, do you speak Swedish? That's the start of a good joke. <laughs> if, a, you know, if a wealthy Moroccan family goes on vacation in Honduras, presumably it's going to be English that they try to speak unless, unless some, you know, precocious kid in their family has learned Spanish. Well, Morocco's close to Spain. So they might, depending on where you are in Morocco, you might speak Spanish. That was one of the, Morocco was kind of a polyglot country because a lot of people there speak French, which was kind of the language of the government, but there was a Spanish part they might try to cobble together some Spanish out of out of their French before they would resort to English. That's a that's maybe a unique example. If you're from the United Arab Emirates, you're not going to know any Spanish. So I feel like I could move to the, well, and especially where I would want to move in Portugal, which is the southern coast. They were colonized by English, you know, UK tourism. In the 80s, maybe as far back as the 70s, the people in the UK realized that they could, it was just a hop, skip, and a jump from Gatwick to Lisbon. And they just flooded that southern coast of Portugal because they like getting really bloated and red-faced, which is a, like the number one thing that UK people want to do on vacation is get bloated and red-faced. <laughs> So they go down there, they go to Ibiza or they go to this, you know, the Algarve in Portugal and you walk around down there and there are British flags everywhere. There are people serving bangers and mash. 
you could live very comfortably down there speaking English because of all the Brits. And so I, because, of, because the online is such a nightmare, I'm online mm-hmm. and I say, what do, you get, what do you get in Portugal? Like, let's say I sold my house here. What would I get in Portugal for half the money? Yeah, what do you, yeah t- that's what I was wondering. Like, what kind of, what would your living be like? Because I would have to, because my only savings are ever going to be in my house. And those are only savings as long as houses keep appreciating in value, which we always assumed would happen forever until 2008 when it very definitely didn't happen for a few years. And then it flipped around again and then it started happening again. We're all, we all assume it's going to happen forever again. But if I'm going to live off of the proceeds of the sale of my house, I have to go somewhere where I don't then immediately spend all that money getting another place to live. Like in Seattle, if I sold my house and wanted to move into the city, I would get a one-bedroom apartment for the money. And so looking in Portugal at houses that would cost half of the amount that I could sell my house for in Seattle, you can get a perfectly fine house in Portugal. So I'm picturing myself walking the little streets, Mm -hmm. eating the little Portuguese small sausages and bangers and mash. And I go, oh, I don't know. It's not that it's not that I wouldn't love living with the Portuguese, but there are all these red-faced English people there. All these Brits standing around listening to the clash. <laughs> Who wants that? That's not where I want to live. So back to the drawing board, and what it all boils down to is I live in Seattle. That's where I live. That's where God wanted me, apparently. God looked around and he was like, where do I need somebody right now that's got a kind of, that's going to grow up to be a sort of sardonic chubbins who wanders around making pithy observations about local traffic. I think Seattle is where this one belongs. And he sent me down some cartoon shoot and I plopped out in a cooperative hospital one of the early cooperative hospitals group health hospital here in Seattle in the 1960s. Yeah. And now I'm here. I'm here. There's very little. If when I was 20 years old, I probably could have moved to Belgium and gotten into the import export business. But am I really going to do that in my late fifties? You know, send my daughter off to college and then not move to the villages in central Florida, but instead move to some racy little edge case town in Portugal where I become the American who's completely divorced from everything he ever knew. And none of his friends come visit because they're all also in their late fifties and probably are trying to do less, not more. I don't know, Dan. It seems somewhat unlikely, right? Very unlikely. So, I mean, you're not really thinking about Portugal, though. Like, I mean, you're thinking about it, really, but you're not. This is not something you could do anytime soon. I think I've talked before that in 2005, 
when I was 37, I said, look, I should move to Berlin. This is the time. Berlin is very cool. I really want to learn German. I've always wanted to learn German. Not always, but since I was in my 20s, I wanted to learn German. I like German. I like Germany. Berlin just feels like it's got a little bit of everything, and it's got that stuff I love, which is that Eastern European decay and cynicism slammed up against this Western European kind of boosterism, unhealthy relationship to capitalism, and like astringent cleanliness. And the two things, although they will blend, will never fully blend. That's a rift that will that will be visible 200 years from now. That Berlin Wall, Eastern and Western. And I like it. I like the feeling there. And if I move to Berlin, I can, at that point in time, you could get a three-bedroom apartment in East Berlin for pennies on the dollar still. Mm. Not not by 2005, but... It was still it was still cheaper in the east than the west, and it was still affordable. And and you know, of course, I didn't do it because there wasn't that one other thing, which was if I had met a girl who lived in Berlin and we'd fallen in love, I probably would have done it, could have done it. Although it's hard for me to know what falling in love means. If I'd met a girl and I was like, huh, that's, you know, she's my, she, she's my anchor tenant. You know, she's the reason I would move to Germany. Or if my German record label, which was very into the long winters and, 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 um, and we were successful there. I was in German Rolling Stone, Dan. That's cool. I but the know that. Ger- yeah, but the Germans didn't. I mean, they liked us just fine, but it wasn't like I went to Germany and and everywhere I went. You know, it was just like German indie rockers. But I don't think I could have moved to the long winters there and German Rolling Stone. I mean, German Rolling Stone wouldn't have put it on the cover. I have uh, There's a situation here in Seattle where a, a rock musician is... A rock musician that was very famous 20 years ago is about to get Me Too'd. <laughs> and we all know it. We know it's coming. It hasn't happened yet. But it's going to happen in the, next, in the next week, I think. And when it happens, it's going to be a long time coming. And it's going to be... Um, in the news here for a little bit, but it's not, but nobody that knows this person is surprised and it's a reckoning that he deserves. And, and he was once upon a time, a pretty big deal, not the biggest deal, not like up there in the top rank of deals, but you know, well situated in the in the middle of the big deals 
And I just heard, uh, I just heard that Rolling Stone magazine in America, when the story was pitched to them, said, mm, no thanks. And of all the things, the, the way that this person's mind works, of all the, the punishments, being banished from rock, being sent down, not even to the mine. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll never stop playing music, but sent down to the miners. Right. None of that is going to hurt him as much as having been told that Rolling Stone doesn't even care about the story of what a creep he is. Because, you know, that's how his mind works. Rolling Stone never cared whether I lived or died. But German Rolling Stone, maybe, <laughs> would have had a little story in the back that was like, American rocker from long winters, long winters, winters, winter, winter winters, moves to Berlin, hosts many parties in his apartment. It's a terrible German accent. You know, sometimes <laughs> I have a great German accent. But I've, it's been so long since I've been there, I don't even remember how, how it sounds. I didn't move to Germany. I didn't move to New York. I'm here. I live in Seattle. What's my problem? I just need to, I need to come to grips with the fact that it's not that bad. A lot of people want to move to Seattle. We don't, like our water's not going to dry up here, at least not for a lot longer than everywhere else. Do you have water problems there right now? We do not currently have problems, but I want to jinx it. You know, uh, I mean, I think there's always like some minimal drought situation and there's always some kind of like potential for, you know, fire to happen, but it's, yeah. you know, I think it's good right now. I think we're mostly good. I haven't been hearing as much about it. So maybe we're you got those good. scrubby little trees that could catch on fire. Yeah. I mean, there, there was actually around the time I was first moving here, maybe 10 years ago, maybe it was a little, a couple of years after that, there were the really bad fires in different parts of central Texas. So, I mean, it does, it does happen. Uh, but I don't think, I think right now we're okay. You know, the thing about Los Angeles is that nobody was meant to live there. Well, California it's not like as a whole, I don't think anyone was meant to live there, but it didn't stop anybody. I mean, in the North, it's nice up there. You, it, I mean, there were people living there clearly, but it, it's not like the Los Angeles basin was some giant native American trading post or anything. It was, you know, it was just kind of a, it, it never got enough rain. Definitely. No one was meant to live in Arizona, maybe up in the mountains. But not very many people. Nobody was meant to live there. People were meant to live here where we live. There were a lot of people living here. They had a whole they had a whole thing going on. And it's still a nice place to live. It's a little dark in the winter. When the rain comes, it's gonna do it's gonna it's gonna wash out my creek again. Hmm. You know, the last three days. There have been over a dozen people in Healy Hansen uh, rainwear down in my ravine 
because the process has begun. The, the King Conservation District has officially begun their takeover of my property, the removal of invasive species and the planting of 1,000 new trees uh, in, uh, just in my, you know, my little shy acre or not, it's not shy acre, my little acre and a, and a quarter. Mm-hmm. And it's very exciting. And I'm sitting here in the house. I haven't gone down to look at their work, but they're bustling down there. There's, there's hustle bustle in the ravine. All these, all these, uh, hippie do-gooders in their, in their, Rainware are down there pulling up blackberry and Italian arum, and they're getting ready to do this big this big push. It's a it's a it's the culmination of two years of work that I've put into changing the the nature of that overgrown ravine into a northwest forest. Like I clearly care. I care about the about the Pacific Nine Bark bush. And how it how it grows relative to the vine maple. It's not like I abhor the Northwest. It's right. Like I'm here. What is my what's my beef? What do I what am I looking for? Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. 